Tech episodes of this podcast are now supported by Furos.io. That is F-U-R-O-S.io. Furos is a Denver cloud consulting firm. And chances are, if there's a big building in downtown Denver with their logo on the outside of it, Furos has got people in there doing some very interesting work that has an impact on those businesses. They focus on AWS, cloud consulting, and their mantra is simple. Hire the best people they can, pay them really well, and let them work on challenging, interesting projects that have impacts on the business. So if you are struggling with the cloud, and I know that's a really overused word in the tech space, and projects aren't getting done, and you need some help, look them up, furos.io, that is F-U-R-O-S dot I-O. I don't know how I'm making this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you for listening. I'm here with my uh, good buddy, Kirk. He's a VP in the healthcare technology services space an excellent storyteller and uh, just wanted to capture some of this <laughs> for broadcast because it's incredibly entertaining and Kirk, we're having some beers. Cheers. Thanks for being here. Love being here at the uh, Sodnikar Global uh, <laughs> Broadcasting Center here at Parker. Uh, it's awesome. Um, yeah. <clears throat> built me up to a point now that I, I know I can't possibly uh, succeed in, in meeting as far as being an awesome storyteller. So thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, hopefully the helicopter ride over to the global broadcasting was fine. It was it was wonderful. Appreciate you putting me up at uh, you know at the the Westin downtown and all that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So the the story that I wanted to start out with was the uh, the the janitor story that you had mm. told me at lunch. Geez, that might have been like six, eight months ago. But that to me, I've tried to retell it and I'm missing some of the vital details. But when you told me that story, I literally got chills and I just wanted to hear it from from your voice. Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, so a little bit of context around it. Uh, my dad was a consulting engineer, worked with, um, by the time he retired, it was the one of the top three in, in the world. And uh he had amazing stories. It was, uh, if you want to think of it in a generational thing, his generation was really the last generation that was kind of building America. Mm. You know, we're now the curators of America. And so our impact, I think, has become a little more incremental than, you know, our, our parents' generation where they were still kind of doing really great things. And uh, he had uh, used it to illustrate to me, it, and I can't remember the context of what brought it up, but it was a well-run project. And how you know you have a well-run project and how you know that you've connected with the right elements of, of folks on your project or program to, to be successful. And the particular story he related was uh, his former boss at this company he worked at actually ran NASA during the moonshot. And it was, um, you know, it was fairly early in the program and he was being recruited from a, a, an engineering firm to come in and do this. And they had had some, you know, some issues with some of the low orbit uh, uh, programs, of, you know, that, that were successful in some respects, but then not successful in others. And uh, 
Um, and so uh, this guy was in there. He'd gone down to, um, I believe it was Houston for the um, uh, for the interview and you know, flown in early in the morning, but interviews all day long. And, and it was near the end of the day. And, and the, the guy uh, kind of running the interview process had uh, said, hey, look, we, we've kept the commissary open for you. Um, uh, they'll feed you. And uh, then you can go hit your red eye back to you know, the West Coast. And so um, uh, he goes into this this cafeteria and it's, you know, standard kind of government, uh, you know, sterile and everyone's got a uniform and so forth. And in those days, everyone had a uniform at NASA. They all kind of had their their place. And uh, he gets his food. It's late at night. He's the only one in there. And he sits down and um, uh, he starts eating. And the, there's a guy that comes up to him and says, um, uh, you know, sir, do you have everything you need? And uh, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Is the answer. And he. Um, and so he says, uh, is there anything I can get for you? Is the facility, you know, uh, supporting your needs? And, you know, a few more questions. And so it gets this, uh, this uh, former boss of my father's thinking. And he says, uh, what is it you do here? And um, I says, well, I'm putting a man on the moon. Yeah, I get that. that. That's what they all say. But what are you doing here? And this gentleman very articulately said, well, I am here to ensure that the facilities provided to our staff, whether they be engineers or astronauts or whomever, are of the highest quality so that nothing can stand in the way of the highest quality output of work. And by doing that, it allows us to have the most elegant solution to get a man on the moon. And essentially, in just a few minutes, much better than what I'm articulating here today, describes to this very senior engineer exactly what he's doing on a day-in, day-out basis, and how it is creating success for the final goal, in this case, putting a man on the moon. The, the punchline of the story is that this guy was the janitor, and he was in charge of the, the cafeteria. And this, uh, this, this the person that was in the interview said, uh, tells my dad, um, I knew that if the janitor knew what he was doing to get a man on the moon, that this was one hell of a well-run project and it was something I wanted to be part of and use that story. I can't tell you how many times on large programs I've been on. I've not necessarily told the story, but it's always been, you know, in the back of my head that if I'm talking to someone on that program and, and, and one of them in particular that comes to mind was a billion dollar program was a software program. And, you know, I would sit purposely, I was in charge of, uh, we didn't have the billion dollars, the billion dollars with the clients spent, ours was a portion of that. But, uh, um, but you know, we had a team well over 100 on it. And I would purposely sit amongst them and, 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 and work with them day in, day out. And I would kind of rotate around the, the various facilities we had a team at. One of the things I always looked for was, did these people understand what the final goal was? Did they understand what we're trying to do and what how what they did on a day in day out basis, how did that actually equate to the end goal? And did they personally have line of sight to what they did and in the ultimate value? And if they didn't, it was my fault that they didn't mm. because as program director over that program, I felt personally responsible for making sure that everyone understood that. Um, obviously, you know, everyone knows, everyone knows the history. We made it to the moon. Um, it was, um, you know, of the 20, later 20th century, one of the greatest technological achievements when you consider that when Kennedy did say, we're going to go to the moon within this decade, that none of the technology existed to get there. I mean, it all had to be invented. 
and the fact that we had that caliber of folks like this gentleman that relayed this story to my dad um, is really pretty pretty darn impressive, and that we were able to bring that together. And again, that the you know really the lowly janitor, when you think about it, you know, got it and understood it, and you know felt empowered in what he was doing. And that uh, the guy, you know, he didn't even know that this guy he was talking to was ultimately going to be the guy in charge of the leader in charge of the entire program. And the fact that, uh, you know, he got it and, you know, saw that that was the mark of a well-run program. You know, I just, it's always spoke volumes to me and especially been able to you know, relate it to my day in day out professional life. <clears throat> Thanks for telling it. I love that story. And I've, I've tried to tell it and the, and the key piece that I had forgotten until now was that the, the janitor's response was that I'm here to get somebody on the moon. Yeah. And in, in no point during the first time I heard it or the retelling of that story, was there any condescension towards the janitor? There was no overinflation <laughs> of his responsibilities. Mm-hmm. It's like, we are here to execute this and you're a part of this. Yes. And not like, oh, you're the sanitation engineer to glamorize it. But it's mm-hmm. like, dude, you matter. And what you do matters to these people. And that's, that, yeah, it's giving me chills again to hear that. Well, the other lesson in that, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, I can literally hear my dad telling the story. He said, um, uh, everyone's opinion matters. And in this case, it was a very prescient moment for this gentleman who uh, was in the interview process. And his name is escaping me right now. Otherwise, I'd be using it because he was a historical figure. So my apologies for not doing my research before I showed up again <laughs> uh, today. But uh, um, consider that the beer speaking or the, the late, late afternoon on Monday. But um, the other lesson was that there's no one on your project team who is beneath your attention. Right. That, that was... That was the fact that this guy could say something that was so impactful for the man ultimately running it, but that the man ultimately running it took the time to listen and ask and actually internalize what this guy said. That's the two-way street. Classic example of this. It's, it's actually kind of funny, um, and it's a complete bunny trail from your question, um, but this is what happens <laughs> when, you know, trail. you bring me to the global broadcasting center and feed me beer is that, that, that I will do this and you can edit it out later if it's not good, oh, no. good, good, oh, good, no. good story. But so um, it actually, it, it does tie because it wasn't long after this would have been the mid eighties that my dad told me this story. It wasn't long after he told me this story because it, 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 it did impact me. Um, and I was a boy scout. I was grew, grew up and I was probably a, uh, every parent's dream of nerddom um, uh, as a kid, you know, I was never in trouble, was in Boy Scouts, got my Eagle Scout and, you know, uh, set my sights on those things. But uh, um, one day uh, a um, uh, Scoutmaster comes to me and says, hey, there's a, you're in Southern California and there is a, um, I don't think you'd mind me using his name. So RG Canning Youth Award. And he's a Big promoter um, in Southern California, car shows, flea markets, etc. Very, very incredibly, uh, I believe he's still around, but very incredibly generous individual to the community because he's done these youth awards with Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, um, you know, community groups, etc. Um, but at any rate, so we had this, uh, you know, hey, it's the RG Canning Youth Award and you can apply for it through the, the, the Boy Scouts. And um, 
And so we had to fill out a form, you know, kind of a questionnaire and stuff. And I filled this out. And then, you know, some weeks later, it's, hey, you know, your your form was received. You're, you've, you've made a, uh, you know, some level of cut. And we'd like to, you know, take a photograph of you in your scout uniform in front of an American flag, you know, that you can, we'll give you a nice little plaque. And so the other scouts in the troop that also applied and, and made the same cut showed up and, you know, again, it was a dad thing, a mom thing is, you know, if you're going to go somewhere, you always go presentable, especially if you're officially representing something. So I had my scout uniform ironed, I had all my medals on and, you know, looked the part. And so we go down there to this, uh, this office building where this guy's office was and, um, and uh, he, you know, we go back into a back room there's um uh he had a, a polaroid i was trying to try to remember the, the the type of camera one of those instamatic polaroids oh um, yeah you know and, and and so he had the polaroid and then a nicer camera and so it was take a few polaroids till he got the the angle right and stuff and then you know they do the the, the, the real shot on the, the um, with the nicer camera and it's just him back there and it's one at a time and we're back there and you know i was the last one to go in and all the other scouts were like yeah the guy the guy behind the camera is an idiot he doesn't know anything about taking pictures and he kept kept talking to me and it just took forever and on and on. And so I go back there and again, you know, I got my dad's uh, story fresh in my mind from just a few years before and figuring this guy is, you know, he's here late at night, he's taking these pictures and he's trying to make small talk. And so I'm making small talk back with him and he's asking about my medals and stuff and I'm telling about scouts and long story short, that was actually the CEO of the company. He was RG Canning and that was my interview. And, um, <laughs> the, the whole thing was a ruse that was his and he told me this later because um the punchline of that is actually won the rg candy youth award for 1986 which was an all expense paid first class trip with two other boys and him through the soviet union mongolia china and japan which wow. back then it was the soviet union the evil empire we were there just a few months after chernobyl and things were still a little bit wacky but it was a lesson in you never know who's on the receiving end. Yeah. In this case, all these other kids uh, thought that uh, this guy was just some, you know, uh, wonk who's doing the, the, the photograph and not really good at that. And here I didn't know who he was at the time, but I treated him with respect and I treated him with dignity and um, and, and seriously, you know, and he uh, he responded to that by uh, giving me this award. And he told me on the trip uh you know, when I asked him what kind of put me over the top, I was just kind of curious because you always want to know. And um, he said, uh, of all the kids I interviewed, and he literally interviewed thousands, this whole Southern California. No um, kidding. Thousands. He said, you were the only one who, not knowing who I was, treated me in a, a, as a colleague and as a, as a, a colleague's the wrong term, but as an equal and with respect and you were polite. I mean, and I came from that era. You, he was an adult and you treated him with respect. And so to me, it was, I wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary, but it was a hell of a reinforcement on, you know, that lesson of you just don't know who's on the receiving end of, of uh, a conversation. And especially in this day and age of social media, and I would say a polarized <laughs> U.S., um, it is kind of a lesson that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know the guy's political views. I don't know if he aligned with me morally, uh, you know, a moral outlook on life or what have you. None of that matters in that situation, but, uh, but connecting with him on a human level and we all put our pants on one leg at a time. We all have to eat breakfast. You know, it's, we're all here on this, this, you know, rock in the universe during a you know period of time. Let's, let's be 
you know, congenial and share that time and make the, the best out of it we can. So, but yeah, so there's my bunny trail. Sorry about that. No, I love that because it's bringing back a quote and I can't remember um, who said it, but I, I remember the, the, the line and it's something to the effect like the true measure of a man is how he treats someone that can do absolutely nothing for him. And so that's people that work for you or that's somebody at the counter and it doesn't cost you anything. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like, I'm, and I've told my kids, this is that intelligence is relative. If Mm -hmm. my car doesn't work, then the mechanic in my universe is the smartest person in the Mm -hmm. world. Right. So he may not have ever been to college, maybe (laughs) flunked out his GPA might be, you know, low or non-existent, but you know what? It's, it doesn't matter. That's his point. And, I've seen people that either don't understand that or they're maybe coolly indifferent. To, mm-hmm. And I see a lot of servers, right? Yeah. And it doesn't, what's it going to hurt, right? To just, you know, either <clears throat> my attitude in life is either be zero to positive, mm-hmm. right? And if you can't do anything, at least be at zero. Or yes. Don't. Don't make it worse. (laughs) So, you know, it's interesting you say that. I was when you were saying the quote, I was trying to remember who that was. And um, it's um, it is someone very famous of the 20th century and not that I'll waste air time trying to figure out who that is. But when you said it, it actually reminded me of a different story, but very much the same lesson. so as Winston Churchill, when he was signing the Declaration of War against the, um, the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, um, sorry, the Emperor of Japan, and so as he's signing it, he signs the, uh, you know, it's the back in the day when they would actually create a Declaration of War that was on parchment and all that and made official. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna kick your ass, but do it in an official manner. And um, and so Winston Churchill signed it. Um, your humble and honorable servant, and which was, you know, Winston was of that Victorian era and the the, the manners and such. And, and Winston's um, aide uh, at the time looked at him and said, are you daft? Why would you say we're, we are declaring war on them. We are basically saying that we are going to come <laughs> and kill you. And you are, you are doing this in, you know, you're signing this way. And, and Winston's quote, and I'm going to butcher it here, but it was along the lines of, if you're going to tell a man you are going to kill him, there's no reason you can't do it in a civilized manner. <laughs> and the 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 lesson, though, in in um, and I love Winston Churchill because he's 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 fertile ground for all these kind of life lessons. Whether he intended it or not, he is enough of a character that um, that you can pull a lot from the things he yeah. said and 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 pull it into current life. Teddy Roosevelt, they're both the same, cut from the same cloth. Teddy was the American Winston. Winston was the, the British Teddy. They're, you know, same era and the same outlook on life. So, you know, they're both kind of fall into that group. But but I thought the lesson there was um, uh, we, we may be going, we may be descending into madness with this World War II, but we are still British. We are yeah. still civilized and we will act in a civilized manner. Um History will bear out that, uh, you know, not all opposing parties acted in a civilized manner there. But uh, in general, with a few exceptions, the British and the Americans did continue to act in what would be considered a relatively civil manner compared to 
some of the atrocities that were committed by the Axis powers. And I think that's the important lesson that comes out of that is we have to do nasty, necessary work. But at the end of this, we need to still be able to live with ourselves, which mm-hmm. is, again, a lesson I think that's well taken in this day and age on when uh, it seems like every day you're hit with some sort of catastrophic this is the end of the universe sort of scenario. And I think we all need to be able to take a step back from that and, and put it in that context of there's no need to lose civility. Agreed. Um, I was in, along the same lines. I was at a coffee shop in Rhino maybe three weeks ago. And this woman was bringing her cup back to the counter. <clears throat> and I had noticed her before because she was on the phone or on a FaceTime and she was upset. She was crying. She just happened to walk up and sit her stuff down. And I just looked over and said, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And total stranger. And, but I didn't want to let her walk out of there without having zero interaction in mm-hmm. this obviously upsetting moment. I don't know if it yeah. was a breakup or hopefully it wasn't something catastrophic yeah. like you yeah. said, but like somebody noticed you and just took a second to go, you all right. And then she's yep. like, yeah, I'm fine. And she walked out and she wasn't, she wasn't rude back to me. I think mm-hmm. she, at least for a nanosecond, kind of understood my intent. Yeah. But it was like... She didn't yeah. want to get into it there, but checkbox, not in a negative way, but checkbox, someone noticed me. Yeah. Someone was human to me. Thank you. But thank you. And just left it at that. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was just like one word or two words. And it was like, but that I just I couldn't let it ride. Like, mm-hmm. it was just somewhat empathetic in that sense. So, yeah. Yeah. But, no, that's... Well, and I think there's a lot to be said. I um, I had an interesting interaction. I travel a lot, as, as we've talked about in the past. Um, and I find it interesting when you're traveling because um, everyone's a different person. Um, <laughs> it it uh, I'm convinced it's the best way. And this, is, this might actually be why Americans in general have a romance around the road trip. You know, whether it's a business or, you know, going to Wally World with the family, you know, and all that stuff. But uh, um it's, it allows you to remake yourself into the person you wish to be. Yes. Because you have, especially if you travel as much as I do, you're on everyone's loyalty program. And, you know, the, the status comes up and suddenly you're a somebody. And, you know, it's <laughs> it's funny. It's corny. But it's a little bit of an ego boost when sure. you can walk into it. And this has happened to me where I, um, I was, I was uh, it was actually that same West Coast uh, project where um, – I would always, I had a system for, okay, you make your airline reservation and you make your hotel reservation, you make your car reservation. You got to do it all at once because in my world, if I don't, I'm going to forget one of those. And, um, (laughs) and it happened to be one trip where I actually forgot all of them except the airline reservation. Um, but I'd already been going out there for about three years and I show up at the the rental car agency and, um, gentleman behind the desk, uh, is a younger kid, uh, says i'm sorry we don't have a reservation for you i'm like oh crap i you know i, I forgot to to make it I, can you just give me a car and they've already literally with three people in front of me they turned away because they had no cars and there's like five other people behind yeah. me that are waiting for a car they've already heard this and you know their family vacation is going to be on hold whatever and the guy's like look sorry man i i don't have anything for you well the guy that ran the uh for the this was a national agency but he ran the local uh officer saw me and he knew me by name he's like mr uh Kirk, sorry, I almost slipped up there. <laughs> Mr. Kirk, uh, let me help you out there and uh, kind of shoes the guy aside. And I, I end up rolling out of there and uh, 
it was like a Camaro or something that was, you know, fairly flashy. And, you know, definitely it was like, yeah, I felt bad for those folks. By the same token, I had traveled 49 weeks that year. So I Holy felt like cow. I had actually earned it. Get to the hotel. And uh, again, the, the gal behind the, uh, the lady behind the front desk is, uh, you know, more of a junior person and going to turn me away. And uh, look, I've, I've got 50 people that stay in this hotel that report to me each week. You do the math on how many night stays that equates to a year. I normally don't pull the I'm someone important stuff. Actually, it really annoys me when people do, <laughs> quite honestly. But but this particular case, I'm like, damn it, I got to go there because there's no other place to stay. There was a convention in town. And so I just texted the business uh, manager for the hotel, who I knew was in the office right behind this gal. As soon as I hit send, she pops up, you know. So nice to see you again. And, you know, I had a room, ended up bumping me up to a suite for my trouble. But but it, it, it makes me laugh because you get treated that way and suddenly you feel like a someone. And there are certain people that, that you can tell that they travel all the time because they don't they don't get hung up on those perks. To them, it just makes that tolerable because you're away mm-hmm. from your family. You're putting up with an enormous load of garbage when you're out there on the road. And, um, and it was, uh, it was actually, I was in, um, in California, um, and, um, and I opened the door for a woman and she looked at me and I just, I do this subconsciously. Again, I came from that, that era where we were taught to do that and you just did it. Um, and, uh, woe be to the child who did not open the door for his mother or grandmother because you were going to, you know. It, life was not going to end well for you Smack. that day. Yeah, exactly. There was going to be some physical contact in one way or the other, and it was not going to be pleasant. Um, and so I opened the door for this lady, and she looks at me, and she said, um, "She said, you don't have to do that for me. I'm not a lady, and I'm normally not quick on my feet. I, I do not want to give the impression that I got these things just there that I can hammer out. But this was one of the rare occasions that it just slipped out, and I didn't even... <laughs> Didn't even mean for it to happen. I said, well, you might not be a lady, man, but I am a gentleman. And she looked at me. Her jaw dropped. I don't think she quite knew what to say. But the two ladies behind her who were um, a little bit older than her uh, thanked me and said, um, you know, it it is so rare to see that nowadays. And we really appreciate it. Um, You know, they were within three to five years of my age. So they weren't like older ladies who had, you know, grown up with this. Um, there were a few guys that, uh, that noticed as well and, and, and also kind of said, Hey man, that was, that was the right thing to do. And, you know, it's funny if all I was doing is opening a door, but it goes back to, you know, you're allowed to kind of make yourself and not that I don't open doors for ladies here, you know, in, in Colorado, but, but you you can be that person you want to be. And I always find it an interesting study when you travel, especially with work, with, colleagues of yours where you're staying at the same hotel you're eating at the same restaurants whatever because you can see how they remake themselves and sometimes they go from being an ass to being even a worse ass (laughs) other ones they do a great job and they they become that better person but uh but yes in this case uh it's it is kind of funny to see but back to your statement about the true measure of a man is how they treat the least amongst them right um it's the same thing it's how do you treat how and, and I've often done that in interviews where um, where I've taken someone out to lunch and I drill this into my kids all the time because they eat like, you know, swine at home. Their manners are terrible. But when they're <laughs> out, they swine. actually do. They do fairly. That one we used just the other night with my daughter. But uh, 
But, you know, when you were out and about at restaurants and stuff, thank God they at least know and have the sense as teenagers and my daughter's in college now, but to at least behave when they're out in public at a restaurant where they're, you know, you're, you're paying for the meal. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'll often, you know, how, how does this person interact? How do they treat the, uh, uh, the, uh, the wait staff? Um, and that's that's a key indicator too, because if they treat the wait staff like they're a subservient or or somehow less than them, then I know that's exactly how they're going to behave when they're in whatever position I'm looking to hire them for. And I can't tell you, I, I haven't hired direct college graduates in probably 15 years. It's typically people with you know 10, 15 years experience that I'm looking at. But even at that, you know, they've been in the working world 10 to 15 years. I'm amazed at how many of them I run into who feel like it's a power trip and like, I'm, I'm so awesome that I can treat this person like dirt. Whereas I, you know, I take Winston's approach to it and I look at it and uh, think, no, actually it's actually Margaret Thatcher was the one that said it, not Winston Churchill. Um, uh, real power is not having to tell anyone you have it. Right. And, um, and so, uh, uh, to me, you know, it, my corollary on that Kirk's corollary is, um, uh, real, um, how would you put that? Um, real grace or real dignity is not having to show people you have it or not having to tell people you have it. You know, it's, it's showing it. It's, it's, it's in the actions. And, uh, and again, my words are escaping me this afternoon. Unfortunately, I used all my good words by about 1145 this morning. <laughs> so you're stuck with all the leftovers and it's been a long desert since 1145 this morning. So you're doing great. <laughs> I use that line jokingly. There's the the Capital One Cafe downtown. Which mm-hmm. is, it's a great spot to hang out. So it's a coffee shop and kind of a micro bank there. But um, you get a discount for coffee if you're a Capital One customer. Oh. And so I I love it because it's right across from like DeVita. It's a okay, cool spot yeah, to hang Yeah, out. right down by Union Station yeah. there. Yeah. And uh, the cashier was asking if I was a Capital One customer. And so I pulled out my wallet and I go, I've got five Capital One cards. I'm a pretty big deal. <laughs> and she's like, get to the back of the line, big deal. <laughs> and I was like, do you recognize me? And I was just totally clowning, right? But she was just, it was just fun to, and that's the only time I ever use that is mm-hmm. when it's just an absolute joke. Yeah, right? over the top. Yeah, and you know the person's not going to take it seriously. Yeah, I've... I've um, I, I use that one with my wife to um, varying degrees of humor, um, depending on what kind of mood she's in. Um, and uh, uh, the other night, uh, without getting into that one, because that's not as fun of a story, because I ended up losing that battle. But uh, it was, a, you know, I'm a real big deal. I shouldn't have to do these sort of things. And kind of, a, you know, around this house, you may you may bring home the paycheck, but you're, you're nothing special. So <laughs> get on it. <laughs> Um, and I think that's, I don't know, we all need those people in our lives that kind of put us back to where we, you know, where we really should be, uh, yeah. which is like where the conversation started off. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. Right. We're all just normal people at the end of the day. We're not, you know, there really isn't anything super special out of out of, of who we are. Yeah. And so I play games at networking functions and if there's like big group dinners <clears throat> that I will try to go as, and I actually do this when I go on sales calls. I will try to go as long as I possibly can without talking about myself at all. Mm. So it'll go around like, oh, what do you do? What do you do? And then I'll immediately ping pong back and go, 
hey, tell me about that. So like every time and nobody notices I'm doing it. So you're winning in this little thing and I'm losing is what you're saying. Because <laughs> I've all been talking about myself for the last who knows how many minutes or hours. And No, this is, this is the whole point. Okay. Nobody wants to hear me talk, right? But, um, and I see it at network functions where mm-hmm. um, the, the guys in particular are trying to out alpha male everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's like listen jerk like if anybody if you were really anybody you wouldn't be here at this function you know mm-hmm. we're at like some mixer on the 16th street mall and like you and and 75 other knuckleheads are working for a mutual fund company big deal yeah everyone <laughs> in the financial industry in denver works for a mutual fund company <laughs> yeah. you run it okay that's a different story but again you wouldn't be here if you ran it yeah you have like, people to attend these for you if you ran it exactly yes. relax you're not anybody important so nice <laughs> So tell me about, I'm going to say this wrong, it's the, the FUPU report? The FUPU report. FUPU report, okay. And you have to say it right to get the right effect. You have to say okay. it fast with a slight um, accent on the P. Okay. Uh, so FUPU report. Okay. Um, so this uh, it was, a, it was, a, it was a program I was running, um, and um, uh, it, was, it was actually kind of funny. Um uh, it, was a, it was a long program. We were there for about four years, and uh, and I it was not done by the time I was done. But I was rolling off and, and going on to do other things with my company. And at the you were a consultant away, at that uh, point. I worked so I was um, I worked for a software company. So okay. I was the program director for that implementation for that software company, and then um, uh, we were a cons- we were the consulting services organization for that software okay. company that would engage with our clients to help them through the implementation. Um, luckily enough for me, we had a poorly defined methodology. We had um, massive expansion. So not all of our resources knew exactly what they were doing when they showed up. And we had a client that had more money than sense. And so they wanted to go stupid every day. Um, so <laughs> so there really was plenty of opportunities for entertainment um, on this project. And, and uh, it, it's actually kind of funny because when I took over the project, I'd actually, it was, it was just starting when I was, um, when I, when I came on board and, um, uh, for that particular project, but I was rolling off of at that time, this project ended up becoming the largest project that that software firm had ever um, implemented. And I was rolling off the previous largest, um, implementation project that that uh, software firm had ever done. And I wasn't leading that one, but was in the, um, if you want to consider it the executive team, I don't know if that would be the actual terminology, the leadership team for that other, the first project, the program. Um, and when the, um, when I was going to the next one, um, my boss uh, asked me, you know, okay, you're coming on board, you know, we, we got big things to do. What are some of the things that, that you um, want to achieve? Great, great individual to this day, best boss I ever had. Um, and one of the first things I told him, I said, you know, I, I noticed coming off of this previous project in the Pacific Northwest, we had a lot of cliques developing in the, the project team. We had a lot of kind of, you know, blocking hmm. of horns and not in a, in a constructive professional manner, but in a, I hate this person. I don't want to be around them. And so at night, no one would go out to dinner together. They'd all go to their separate spots. No one would interact. And I said, that's wrong. Um, you know, we're all on the road. We're away from our families. And I'm a strong believer that if you really like the people you work with, and I'm not saying you got to be best friends with them, et cetera, but if you enjoy the people you work with and you can connect with them on a human level, even if you're not like in your, your interests and such, you're going to do better work. 
because when those situations come up that and they do during these during any any job no job's easy but in particular during these types of jobs uh, where you're on site the client they're looking for you to screw up they're paying a premium for you to be there they're looking for any excuse to bust you down you got to have people that have each other's back and if you mm-hmm. don't the program's not successful um, so my goal out of this program was that when the final person rolls off, that we can all still get together. We can have a kick-ass time at a party. We can hang out. We can laugh. We can still be civil and human to each other, you know, back to our previous, you know, topic here a few minutes ago. And so that was, you know, he thought that was an odd, um, you know, goal. He said, well, you know, don't you want to on time, on budget, triple constraint, you know, project managers drilled this into your head, triple constraint, you know, budget, schedule, um, scope, it's all, you know, it's all tied in and that's, we want, we want to deliver within, yeah, that's table stakes. But in the end, I'm looking to have this team experienced and ready for the next engagement because we're going to sell more software. And, and, and that's my duty to my employer is not just deliver this particular client successful, but if they can all walk away as a team and feel like a team, then I've accomplished my goal because now they can go to any other project and when they run into each other again, they're going to be effective. And as much as the bad apple ruins the barrel, um, you can you can positively infect too. You've got a lot of great people that, that, that roll off this project and go to other places. They're going to positively infect those other places, going to bring the ideas that were successful here to those other projects. So I, you know, I really felt that that was a great goal. As a measure for that, after four years... Um, uh, and again, as I warned you ahead of time, I'll never be uh, direct and to the point. Uh, you, you've got no, the license it. to wander, so I'm wandering. Yeah, um, I'm totally but, tracking. Uh, but the FUP U report came out of, um, during my um, my tenure there, I tended to have, at this program, um, I tended to have certain phraseology that uh, it's just who I am. I, you know, the English <laughs> language can be so boring, but it also can be this this palette of, this blank palette uh or blank canvas and, and, and you know, I can have a whole palette of colors to paint it, whatever you want. And so, you know, we had all sorts of crazy going on there at that program. And, you know, one of the, the, the favorite that I shared this with you a little bit, a little bit ago was um, you know, you'd have these situations where um, someone was just not in the right position. I'll be, I'll be gentle. And they would do stuff that just drove us crazy. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I had to say, God, he or she, it, it was not gender specific, but he or she, they'd have to improve to suck. You know, they, <laughs> they were just, they were so bad. They actually had to get better just to get to like the suck level. Um, you know, uh, God, I wish I'd, I wish I'd pull, I still have the list on a hard drive somewhere. Cause it just, I mean, even to this day, I read it and just break out cr- almost crying. I'm laughing so hard at some of the stuff. I'm like, I really said that. Um, <laughs> The, the oh did we explain the acronym what that we, oh what that's we, right i'm sorry we never did we never did <laughs> fup you is actually an acronym that stands for frequently used phrase utilization report <laughs> so it was the fup you report and obviously it was named that way for a reason um uh there was one kind of funny scenario where um one of the guys on the project uh, he was a, a divorcee and um and he was early on the project with me and um we we're having dinner in uh in uh at the hotel and um one of the challenges I've, I've never had this challenge any other time in life which is um beautiful women coming up and wanting to talk to you okay that's just not something i've ever been afflicted with anytime, 
<laughs> but this guy had the look, he had the charm. He just, and he didn't even try. It just came out. He was just, he was that genetic freak that apparently all women find just incredibly attractive. So it was not uncommon for us to be talking business and some, you know, business traveler at the bar, you know, some lady comes over and wants to strike up conversation. I'm sure you're hit with this all the time, but, uh, but <laughs> no. I, I'm not. <laughs> and so, um, it's a good thing. I guess you, you say I got a face made for radio, one of those sorts of things. So, but uh, <laughs> at any rate, so, uh, so he's, um, he's talking with me and, uh, and this woman comes up and, and starts to, um, uh, strike up a conversation and he's, you know, he's being polite and I'm being polite and you know, I'm just kind of ogling in this whole spectacle that's occurring before me because this is just kind of funny to watch. Well, in comes, uh, this guy worked with, uh, one of the big five consulting firms who was also, uh, on this project and a little bit of our frenemy at the time. We didn't know whether they were trying to steal business or help us at any point of the day. And it could change several points during the day. Well, this guy comes in and in picture, um, I, have you ever seen the Bourne movies? The, oh, yeah. The the CIA director. I think it's the second one where the guy is just, he's like in his 60s. He's he's looking at his pension going away. And he like runs up to the hotel room. He's like got the mini bar going and he's like pounding down the drinks just to like to get himself back to a point where he can engage with humanity. That, that dude, this was that dude, you know, <laughs> got the hair grease. He's got the, the, the grease back comb over going on. And he's oh. like in his maybe late 50s and you know, clearly not achieved a single goal in his life that he was looking for. And he comes up to us, he sees us in the bar, comes up to us and he's three sheets to the wind. And this guy is, is, is just drunk as a skunk. And he comes up and just the, the vapor trail coming off him is something fierce. And uh, this woman, you know, he sits down and just like he's joining us, this woman's looking at, at my, my buddy, Mike and I like, who's this dude? And we're not kicking him out. So she's like, he must be, you know, the wingman, maybe God forbid, but you know, maybe he's just here. And so, uh, She's like, well, what do you guys do? And of course, we were going to give the can, you know, our consulting organization. We do this. We solve our clients' problems. Well, this guy, uh, his name's escaping me right now, but he just, I mean, like leans across the table, puts his arm around this woman's shoulder. She's just horrified at this point. <laughs> he says, well, you see, there's, there's, there's these people. Lots of money. There's lots of money. And, and they got these problems, you see. And these problems are hard to solve. And they can't solve them themselves, but, but, and there's lots of meetings involved and he's like, he's, he's just trying to get it out and he just can't. And this woman is looking at him like, good Lord, what have I stepped into? And Mike's looking across at me like, I just want to be dead right now. Just not be here. Like go up in a puff of smoke. And, and, and this guy, he's going on for like, like four or five minutes on this. And finally we're just, she's like, okay, we'll see you later. And she goes away. Well, from that moment on during the entire project when something would happen, you know, some crazy thing would happen. I, you know, we didn't, the client didn't achieve this, this milestone or this goal. We'd say, well, you see, there's the, these people, these people, these people, <laughs> these have, they, they have these problems and there's lots of meetings involved. And it just, it became this catchphrase. And by the end, we had about 120 people on that project. By the end of the project, everyone knew that line. And anytime just complete batshit crazy hit some day in, day out, we would just, we would say that and it was like the power of humor because we could have everything going wrong. And I would throw out that phrase or some of the other ones like, you know, um, uh, PowerPoints, the, the, the guys from Deloitte loved PowerPoints oh. and you can't show up to me without a power. And I used to say, it's like crack cocaine. They just, they can't get enough of it. And so that was one of the other phrases, but there was about 20 of these phrases that, that ended up on this list. And then they started, I had no knowledge of this till the day I left. 
but every week they'd have a submission list and then whoever won the submission list would get some sort of bobble from the week. Like they would, like everyone would, you know, you they're a, counting your phrase. They were counted. It was, well, it was, it was how many times I use it. But another one was actually a new one. Oh, so, um, the, and, 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 you know, you're on a, you're on an expense account, so you can only go above $60 a day for your food. But if you're with a group, they didn't really track that. And so whoever won the fuck you submission for the week, they would have someone else take them out for dinner and they could go with a little bit nicer dinner, like nicer wine or an extra glass of wine than they normally would. And it would still be considered under budget for the project. And so that was the award they got. And, uh, and all based I, around stuff. you All said. based around stuff. I said, <laughs> unbeknownst to me that these were, you know, were things that were um, coming across, you know, and, and the one that um, that, uh, that in particular, this gentleman's name was um, uh, Chuck, um, Chuck, Ch- uh, something along those lines. Sorry, it's escaping me now, but we'll call him Chuck for now. Um, so uh, Chuck came up to me and he was really pleased because his submission was reality distortion field. No one had ever heard about that. And and. And we happened to find that. So, so at this particular client, um, they were a very large um, uh, uh, player in, in the healthcare industry, and um, there were things that did not make sense unless you worked there. Okay. And so, my point when they were, you know, you go to a meeting to do a, a particular um, presentation or a milestone report, and you walk into the room, and there's 80 people in the room, and you're like. This was just supposed to be to the executive committee. Well, every executive has their favorite minion who's going to then tell them what the real story. So they want them in the room. To, it's just this whole Byzantine political you know, structure that, that operated this whole place. It was it, one day I'm going to sit down and write a book and I'll be a millionaire and I'll, I'll, I'll share that because you gave me your start here on the, you know, the Matt Sonnikar <laughs> hour. But, uh, but, uh, but so, um, so my comment when I was describing this to, so, so the first one was if I, if you understood it, then I explained it wrong. So that was another phrase because I would explain something to someone and they're like, Oh, I totally get it. I'm like, then I explained it wrong. Cause if that made sense, it shouldn't have means you're part of the problem. But the other one was, um, was you'd explain something to me like, I don't get it. I'm like, you got to step inside the client's reality distortion field. Because once you're inside the reality distortion field, you can look at it from their frame of reference and then it makes sense. But in in, in particular, their reality distortion field happened to start right at the curb where you entered into the parking lot because the parking lot actually made no sense whatsoever. And there were literally years of my life spent trying to get out of that damn place because you, (laughs) you, you park and then you, you know, then you had, and it was compounded by the fact that if you're traveling all the time each week, your car is different. Oh, geez. Yeah. So not only are you, where did I park this week, but what the hell car did I drive this week? Was it the, was it the, uh, the Nissan? Was it the Toyota? So you're, you're trying to remember, and then you're walking around the parking lot, hitting the little horn button, trying to, which, you know, so, so we kind of joke that, you know, the people that ran the company probably laid out the parking lot too, because once you got in there, there's just no easy way out. Um, so yeah, reality distortion field. That was the one that, uh, that, that one Chuck, uh, I think it was a lobster dinner or something. <laughs> it was, it was, but, but it was, again, it went back to that lesson of you're leading a large program like that. Not that you're, t- I mean, he's, this client was burning 60, what was it? We calculate $60,000 an hour 
was their burn rate at the peak on this program. They were they were laying down some money. So we clearly had to take it seriously as far as we were busting our ass to, to get the milestones, to yeah. have good quality deliverables. But when when the wheels came off and when, you know, batshit crazy came into the room and people started to kind of lose their 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 sensibility, that's when you had to throw in some humor. You had to throw in, you had to be able to turn a phrase. I, and again, I some of the best ones aren't coming to my mind. I will send you the list, and you can you awesome. can, we can do that was, as a future ask you to do a that. future episode. <clears throat> it's it's the list, but yeah, it was the fuck you um, uh, report um, for frequently fra- used uh, frequently utilized phrase frequently used phrase utilization report. Sorry, I fumbled that one. Um, and I still know the gentleman that put it together. He's still here, and uh, he works with my old employer. He's still here in uh, in the Parker area, and. Uh, um, every now and then, uh, he'll, uh, when I see him, he'll, he'll ask about that. I'm like, yeah, I still got that. I still got that. And, and it was funny because, um, since I left that project, I, I rolled off in 2012 at the end of, um, beginning of 2012. And, uh, um, I have run into folks who are on that project in airports around the country. In one case, sitting next to them on the airplane where I just dumb luck happened to sit on the, on the airplane with them. And these are, you know, I no longer work the company. They don't, they don't owe me anything. Every single one of them to a, to a, a woman and a man has said, that's the best program I've ever worked on because at the end of it, we were all still civil and friends to each other. We can, I still talk to people who are on that program who I haven't worked with in five, six years. And I still, you know, I still, um, I, I, we, we laugh about the stuff that, that went on and we learned so much from it and, and, and you invested in it and so in us and, and, and you, you know, just as a, as a team, we hung together. And, uh, you know, I always felt like that was the best compliment I could possibly get. Um, you know, even, even the client begrudgingly gave us, uh, you know, a, a thumbs up uh, talking with years after I left, I talked with the executive director who ended up taking it over from the client side and, and, uh, and it was funny. He said, you know, after a billion dollars spent and, uh, um, and um, every attempt not to do it, we duplicated our legacy system in the new system, which is just crushing. Now, granted, mm-hmm. the majority of that happened after implementation and after we left the project. So that's my disclaimer there. But it is heartbreaking to me. But he did very quickly follow it up with, because we never listened to you. We always thought we could do it better, and we didn't listen to you, and we should have listened to you because we hired you guys to be the experts, and we didn't we didn't take advantage of the uh, the, the knowledge you gave us when you were there. So, so that's the that's the pin in that whole story. But I will send you wow. the list of the frequently <clears throat> the the fuck you report. Um, yeah, two two. Uh, there's a, there's a few others that'll come to mind. Probably about two a.m. this morning. So you'll your phone starts blowing up about 2 a.m. this morning. I'm going to text you for having planted this warm chewing gum on the bottom of my brain that I now got to peel off uh, mentally here later tonight. Well, I I love this conversation because the past like four or five uh, interviews I've done with um, people that are in like CTOs and they've talked about culture and I've also talked to uh, a professor at CU, Peter mm-hmm. McGraw, who wrote the Humor Code. And mm-hmm. He's taking that mm-hmm. into like a a humor business thing, <clears throat> and I love where these intersect and like the the nuts and bolts of the project. At least to me, are not that interesting. But when you're talking about those people, might not even remember the work that they did, but they look back on that and they've had human connections through 
a tough time and mm-hmm. then using humor in that way. That to me is just is fascinating. And I, and I know from my own personal experience, that's not an easy thing to do. It's not in, um, in a very, um, and, and, and not to sound belittling or disrespectful in any way to a a combat veteran. Yeah. Um, uh, have a grandfather who was in world war one and an uncle who, uh, was in world war two. So I have the utmost respect for folks that, and, and, and by the grace of God, I've not had to, uh, be, um, in the military during a time of war. Um, but utmost respect for them. But when you look at, in my, in my experience, it was the, the site team who's on site at a project, or in this case, a program, it was almost 200 million for us. Um, you develop some of that camaraderie level that the, the combat veterans get together. You know, you, you, you know, they were in a foxhole together. They had to see the worst of humanity. They had to experience things that, that the, the common person just can't wrap their head around. Doesn't matter the war. Any war is horrific. Uh, whatever combat theater you're in and uh, current wars uh, included, there's just nothing that can ever make that not horrible. Um, so again, not, not trying to, 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 to minimize that, but it's like you said, a shared common misery that creates a shared common camaraderie. And out of that comes a humor that's at a yeah. level that is not what you can experience. And, and it's kind of funny after I, I rolled off that, that position at that company, I took a position at the headquarters here in the, the Denver area where I had the, you know, you wouldn't call it a nine to five job. I don't think I ever worked a 40 hour week, but, um, but we, um, you know, you're going to an office every day, you're going home to your family every day. And we did not have that level of camaraderie and I actually missed it. Um, you, you felt like, uh, I don't know if this person has my back yet on that particular, actually on virtually every project I've led and every program I've led, um, with only a very few exceptions, I've ever felt that that a team member wouldn't have my back and vice versa, that I wouldn't have their back if something went sideways. And, you know, it's interesting, though, that in there are commonalities between those two scenarios and, and some of that fuck you report is, is some of that humor, that mm-hmm. dark, that that gallows humor almost that that you can laugh at because you had that shared experience. And, um, you know, it's interesting, my, again, a, a story from my dad or a, a, an observation from my dad. Um, you know, he, uh, he missed uh, World War II by just a few years. Um, he was born in 1930. Uh, he had a lot of friends in high school, uh, junior high and high school that were just a few years ahead of him that went and didn't come back. Uh, and, you know, he experienced the Great Depression and, and saw the horror of that. And, um, and you know, I asked him about, you know, what was it like when you first hit the working world? Because, you know, for you and I, we were just getting into our professional careers before computers totally took over the day-to-day lives. I mean, I still remember my first few jobs that only if only a few of the leadership actually had a PC at their desk. Right. Um, you might have had a mainframe that you were accessing a, an ERP system with or something like that. But for the most part, you and I probably caught the very tail end of what I would consider the traditional or historical workday. And uh, now, you know, some um, too many years to, to state on, on the, the air here uh, <laughs> since those days for me. But um, but uh, where I where I look back and I, you know, before my father passed away, I used to talk to him every Sunday night. We talked business and other things. And I used to ask him, 
what was it like before computers? What was it like to actually work? Right. You know, because for me, work is being on meetings on, on WebEx or writing emails or building a document and sending it off. And, you know, back then it was you had to dictate to a secretary. I mean, he was third man down at an international company. So he had people. He was responsible for 5,000 people when he finally retired. So he had people to do things for him. But I was like, what was that like going up through that where you had to be that person? And, you know, he had some interesting observations. Number one was the kind of stuff you and I deal with in our corporate lives where you have these executives who just didn't just, they don't know crap. They just, they're, they're a good talker, but you look at their resume, they're about 18 months to three years in every position. You figure they're, they're out moments before the law shows up pretty much, you know, and figures out that what you've been feeding us is a bunch of BS. And that you're you just wearing a fake mustache. Exactly. You're wearing a fake mustache. You're Kramer, you know, you're showing up, you're not actually employed here, you know? So, he, you know, his opinion, and, and there were exceptions to this, uh, most definitely exceptions. Not everyone was perfect in that era, but at least in his experience, he said, by the time you made it to that senior executive level, you really had filled every position. Sure. And you had to do those things. There was no one to blame. There was no one to kind of ride the coattails of, because at least in his experience in engineering firm, you had to have built it. You had to show that you could do that. So he felt like they were ending up with a much more competent um, uh, cadre of, of leadership in their companies. But then, you know, I started probing a little bit into that. I'm like, Dad, but look at the era you came from. You know, you were just shy of it. But when you were a junior executive, how many of your senior executives had not served in World War II? He said none yeah. of them. Every one of them had been in the military and say what you will about the military, but they do teach people how to operate in a structured environment with a chain of command and accomplishes some big ass goals, especially when you look at the mid-century, what we as a country internationally, you know, accomplished. Um, so, you know, there's a story that Stephen Ambrose, I'm a huge history fan and I love mm. Stephen Ambrose. And there was a, there was a story he had written um, it, it was, I was reading, I was listening to his book on tape. I used to drive a lot for work, uh, travel wise. And so I have these books on tape. And, um, he said when he got to college, Stephen Ambrose got to college. One of his professors had been a submarine captain in world war II in the Pacific. And he said, you don't think we respected the hell out of that guy. There right. wasn't a thing that came out of his mouth that we didn't take as God's gospel. And there wasn't anything in that room that happened that even sniffed of disrespect because this guy had been there. He had done that. And we, we respected him for it. Fast forward to when you and I were in school, most of our college uh, teachers, mine at least, and I, and I know some people take offense to this. So my apologies up front. A lot of them were draft dodgers. I mean, I mm -hmm. had some that were very proud of the fact they draft the dodge. I'm not going to, or dodge the draft, excuse me. I'm not going to comment on the, the, the moral grounding for, for Vietnam or what they did, but that doesn't carry with it the same weight as I commanded a U-boat in the greatest conflict of the 20th century and possibly of the last several hundred years of human history. Yeah. Um, you know, so those people that, you know, were in World War II and then went into the working world, wherever they ended up in, you know, had such a huge impact on the folks that came up under them because they didn't put up with bullshit. They could sniff out a charlatan <laughs> right away and just had something come up here recently where, you know, 
got a story where someone was essentially trying to pull something over. Not a, thankfully it wasn't on a client of ours. It was a, it was through a networking deal that I heard about this from a former employer. And I thought, wow, that's deaf if you're in the consulting industry, because it's all about your reputation. You got this going on out there, but unfortunately in an information age, so much of what we do is collaborative. So much of what we do is not tangible from a, you know, a bridge doesn't, it, exceptions to this, but for where you and I live, a bridge typically doesn't stand as a result of our efforts. It's right. it's zeros and ones that make things do things that maybe it's an ERP system or a benefit system that now works. That's that's a little bit easier to kind of shag your way through that than, um, you know, I put, I, I was the guy that ran the program that put a man on the moon. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> tangible. And you can look through the telescope for those naysayers. You can actually look through a telescope and see where the lander still stands. I mean, that's, it's, it's there, it's tangible. It's, it's for real. And, uh, and that, I think I, you know, you look at kind of what's going on in the world today. And I think that's one of the big elements that is missing is that we have not had that, uh, that kind of tangibility, in our professional world for a gener a working generation or two. And so, you know, it was interesting. It was one of the, the, the topics you had there. Uh, um, uh, one of my former clients, the firing, the, the, the CEO. Oh, yeah. one. Um, I figure I better segue soon or I'm going to run, run you out of disc space. No, here, so. Just making sure you're good on time. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I can go a little bit longer. Okay, um, cool. But uh, so we had, um, uh, and this was actually a kind of a, um, an interesting timing because it actually timed with um, uh, right about the time my father passed away, he died of blood cancer. And um, so knew he was gone, you know, mind sharp as attack to the, up to the day he died. Um, and uh, uh, so um, he loved hearing these kind of corporate you know, these, this, this working history, you know, he, he loved, that was his escape. And um, so uh, this was a, a soap opera. Unfortunately, he didn't live long enough to see the end of, but um at least not in this lifetime, but we were, we were helping a client that, uh, um, that was, uh, uh, had had a, a phenomenal growth. Um, it was, uh, it was through the healthcare industry. I'll leave it at that just to, to protect the, um, the, the innocent or guilty, depending on your point of view, um, <laughs> in this case, but it was uh, in the healthcare industry and they had started as a very small company. Um, I'll even not go into what vertical they were in, but it was a small company that took was able to take advantage of some of the um, political legislation that came through the Obama administration. And they had extraordinary growth over a very short period of time. Um, the gentleman that ran the company um, was uh, an amazing individual. He had been a physician um, in years past, had done some amazing things there, then went into a different sector and, uh, and did some amazing things there um, in the town that he lived in. Um, he was uh, the kind of person that any metro area would love because he poured his profits and his energies into not just building this company, but making the community that they worked in in a very tangible way, uh, very um, uh, a much better place. And and again, um, if I tell the name, then it, 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 it outs it too much, but it's we'll leave it to say that it was a city that needed a patent patron saint. Um, so he, in all respects, all earthly respects, he was a um, phenomenal individual. Um, but they wanted to accomplish something uh, that we were helping him on that um, <clears throat> had to do with, um, you know, evaluation of a, of, a, of a business model they had and, um, and whether it was going to be successful or not. 
And so that led to, um, you know, guys, you're, you're going to need a bigger boat, kind of one of those conversations. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that got us some more work there and, and it was helping them kind of figure out how big the boat needed to be and, and so on and so forth. Um, well, it came to a point where they finally put out their their BHAG, their big, hairy, audacious goal, which was something I knew they weren't going to be successful with because I had worked with companies that had been successful before there, but it took them 20, 25 years to get there. These guys wanted to do it at 18 months. Gotcha. And it's one of those, I don't care how badass you think you are, you're not going to do this. You're not going to be successful at it. Um we had the, thankfully I worked with the company's privately held company. I talked with the owner and, and the, and I was part of the executive team on that company. Um, you know, talked with the owner and the rest of the executive committee and basically said, look, we're making money hand over fist, helping these guys right now, <clears throat> but we're in an inflection point that if we keep going, that's going to become bad money because we'll have probably 18 months of a great revenue stream but in 18 months and one day, the client will realize what we already know, which is they're not going to make it and they're going to be pissed at us for not letting them know they're not going to make it. Um, and, uh, and, and we all agreed this is the right thing to do. We had to walk away from the largest client in our portfolio. Um, we did not have a second largest client that was anywhere close to this. And, uh, and I um, was out to visit the, uh, the, the CEO um, the what made it an extra challenging conversation i had not shared this with you earlier but what it made an extra challenging conversation is that monday i was on the west coast for another client um, trying to get their project back on schedule and i got a call from my parents um, we need to talk immediately and, and the call started with uh, my dad telling me um, i'm dying and i probably will not live to see the end of the year um, this wow. was this was the the right around the 15th of December-ish. I can't remember the exact date. Um, so it's like to, two weeks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be here in less than two weeks. You need to come. And if, if you have anything or if you want to see me, and I've always had a, a good relationship with my parents, so if you have anything you want to see or talk to me about, it's got to it's gotta be now. Dad, I'm, I'm here on the West Coast. I've got this, you know, I'm trying to get this project that's totally derailed off, you know, back on the rails. I got to fly out to the East. I literally flying home tomorrow to spend one night in denver because on the next morning i'm back on a plane to the east coast for this other client that's that i gotta i gotta sit with them and and have a very tough conversation you know can the doctor keep you alive to sunday saturday because i, I think saturday yeah it's like i if, <clears throat> if, if the answer is no everyone involved would understand but if the answer is yes i can keep you alive that long then can I come on the weekend? And so literally, you know, he's, I, I'll have to ask the doctor. I don't know. So, um, literally went through the whole next day working with that client, got on the airplane, heading home, didn't know whether I was going to see my dad again. Um, thankfully got a, a, an email from them. Um, that night doc says he can keep me alive as blood cancer. So it had to do with transfusions and mm. chelating blood and, and what's, uh, you know, the, whether, whether the, the balance was going to get out of whack to the point where he would get, uh, his brain function would go away. So it was one of those kind of things that you kind of have to ask, is he going to be, you know, mentally there or not? Um, so the answer came back. Yes, we can keep him alive until, you know, the following week and you're going to be fine. So um, to interrupt you real quick, yeah, yeah. how did you, how were you able to focus on that knowing that there was something that massive and permanent 
and then dealing with what you had to do for work did you how did you even um process that uh probably a genetic flaw um <laughs> honestly <laughs> no i it's um it's a whole nother podcast uh, so i won't okay. go into the details of it now but in a former life i was an olympic uh, uh competitor uh, okay i qualified for the 1996 olympics again we'll leave that for another podcast part two part I'll make two it but okay. um one of the one of the the skills I I honed through that was the ability to shut out everything that's not in the moment and right in front of me. Okay. Um. So I would say that that came in handy during that week. Sure. Um. I, I would I would be a liar if I said it wasn't always on my mind when I was in those meetings. You know, during uh, that week with the clients, um, that I didn't have my moments of just you know trying to choke back the tears and so forth. Um. You know, I'm not that. You know, I'm, I'm not that impervious to it, but um, but I also knew because of his background, he absolutely understood the situation I was in and respected it. You know, that sure. he, he wouldn't have had I said, let me drop all this. If he knew he could survive into several weeks and I said, oh, I'm going to drop everything. I'm going to be on a plane. He'd say, no, finish your week. I'll be here this weekend and we'll we'll talk this weekend. So so there was kind of this this. He knew me and I knew him well enough to know that that was okay to say, dad, will you? Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I uh, flew home um, and then had to fly out to uh, the East Coast for this tough conversation. Um, and then that Friday, so I was flying home Thursday afternoon from the East Coast and then back on another plane Friday morning to my, uh, my uh, where my dad was on the West Coast. My mom and dad were on the West Coast. Um uh, so it was six or seven plane trips in five days. Uh, wow. Not exactly my my goal I was trying to achieve in life, but uh, mark that one off the bucket list. So um, uh, so there's some context around that that I have to sit down and talk with the CEO and basically say what you're trying to achieve is unachievable. And if you want to go that direction, I can't go there with you, which I know is not going to be a good um, a good uh, um, a conversation. And as as karma would have it, um, if you believe in that sort of thing, it happened to uh, align around the last meeting I had at that client site before I had to skate to the airport to pick up the plight to get me home to get me to, you know, back to my parents uh, in time to see my dad before he potentially was no longer this earth. Um, and of course, being the CEO, I got to delay the meeting. I got to delay. So we're now getting to the point where. I have to have this meeting quicker than I wanted to, or I'm not getting home, which means I'm not going to potentially see my dad before he's no longer with us. Um, just because the conversation wasn't difficult enough to begin with. And uh, um, <clears throat> so sitting down with, with, uh, with, uh, um, we'll just call him uh, the CEO at this point. Uh, so, you know, the CEO, his, in his, his private office, there's no one else there. And I basically said, look, you're, what you're trying to do, um, I've worked with companies that took 25 years to do it. Very carefully, I had it written out, you know, so you had it to look at. These are the these, This is why you're not going to be successful down this path. This is why you could be successful down another path. Um, to say that he um, did not take the news well would be an understatement. Um, there was <laughs> there was a very allergic reaction to. Um, to to my my statement, which then was followed up with a very aerobic conversation about, you know, <laughs> why would I do this, and we're the trusted business partner, and on it, you know, and it essentially ended with, 
if we're the trusted business partner, then you've got to respect my opinion on this yeah. and, and, um, and follow my advice. And, and essentially my opinion was um, either you stay with your current uh, business model, which has made you extraordinarily successful, has made a number of folks employable in a town that has very high unemployment. So in, by any measure, you can be proud of that. Um, beyond just making money, you have done good work here um, corporately. You can go the direction you want to go, which will lead you down a path of, of, of not good success. Um, you will, um, you know, very in a very short order, you will find that you're dumping a lot of money into something that will continue to suck more money, and you will never see any of that come back in the way of an ROI. Or sell the company while you still have a company to sell. And that was the piece that, because this was his lifeblood, this was his, you know, his, his personal thing, you know, his personal um, value in there. And to say you'd sell that, it'd be like, you know, pimp out your daughter on Colfax Avenue. I mean, it would be akin to that. Right. So um, uh, needless to say, um, he, he, the one thing I respect, I respect him for a number of things, but but when we finally got up to part and I said, I, I think this is it. And, you know, I'm sitting there looking at my watch thinking, am I going to make this flight even at this point? And I got to close this down. And he just kept wanting to go. And finally, I just said, look, I've said my piece. You need to make a decision. Whatever that decision is, I respect it, whether I can agree with it and follow it or not. Um, he said, we're done. We're done. I'm, I'm done with you. I'm, I'm, I feel betrayed. I feel like you have stabbed me in the back. I'm, I, I, I will respect you professionally, but essentially goodbye and don't call. Um, you know, we, we did part with a handshake um, about a year, about 18 months later, um, it hit the news that that company was acquired for a very handsome sum. And I thought, you know, I still got this guy's email address. I'm just going to send him an email just, just because I'm that person. Send him a nice email. Congratulations on the sale of the business. Um, you uh, clearly drove a, a, a good bargain. You got a good price for what I think is an extraordinary asset that this other company acquired. And, you know, again, I, I repeat what I said to you in the office that I think that you have much to be proud of in this life for what you've accomplished and certainly hope that you understand that if, if my opinion means nothing, it means anything to you. Um, I was dumbfounded that in less than two minutes, I got a response from him. Um, he said it was the hardest decision I ever made in my life. Um, I hope to God I never have to make another decision like that in my life, but clearly it was the right decision. And, uh, and I appreciate the advice. Wow. So, you know, as a consultant, um, who, you know, you often are the, the, the anvil that the hammer of the client is pounding <laughs> time and time again, um, that there's rarely a thank you um, in my business, uh, in our industry, there's rarely a thank you. But I considered that one of the probably the best um, thank yous or, or acknowledgements that you could possibly get. Because oftentimes this is opinion. It's not science. It's mm -hmm. not a, you know, it's black art sort of thing. And, and maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but you're, you're judging based on your experience and your, your intellect, whether it is, and in this case felt very, justified in the decision or the the, con the, uh, the the information we had given and the fact that he felt justified in the decision and whether he fully gave me credit or not for having put that idea in his head, the fact that uh, that he answered me as quickly as he did and that he even answered me with a truthful answer I thought was uh, 
is all the uh, um, the uh, uh, what encouragement or or um, acknowledgement or or uh, validation I needed. So yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Well, and I love that story because I wanted to capture that because it was you making a very hard decision for the company and the client, but you knew it. You saw the train track was going right into the the side of the mountain like mm-hmm. wild coyote <clears throat> and you know and you said 18 months in one day that money would have turned bad mm-hmm. and you know there's probably a lot of people a lot of companies that would be like yeah we'll, we'll cross that bridge in another 18 months but we're still gonna milk it and kind of you know do whatever but yeah yeah it says a lot about your character and just the you know, how you operate and that's just, it's a, it's a great story and it's not always the easy thing to do, but if you really are a consultant and you're there to help the client, you're going to be faced with those decisions. You know, it's funny. Um, my current employer, uh, the CEO, um, great guy, uh, got a, got a really thick New York accent and he always likes to say, you know, God, I hate, I hate consultants, man. They come in and they, they use your watch to tell you what time it is. <laughs> Always throws that in my face. And he does it. I mean, it's all in fun and everything, but there's a little bit of truth behind it. And unfortunately, there's too many of them out there like that. And it's given the industry a, a bad name. And, and rightfully so. There's 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 charlatans out there. And as I mentioned earlier, in the information age, they can get away with this stuff. But when it comes down to it, it shouldn't be as standout as it is when you do the right thing. And that's the thing I find truly heartbreaking yeah. is, is um, you know, a client should really expect that. They should expect you're going to give. I mean, I joke with a client. I, I come pre-fired. I'm a consultant. I, I, I The day I show up, I know I'm fired at some point. And hopefully, I say fired air quotes, hopefully that departure is a positive one. But I don't come here with a, a, a desire to be a long-term employee. So I'm not going to. I will be a player in the, I will play the political game, but I will not be a player in the political game. And, um, and that's, you know, my point to my current CEO is that's what folks at your level need because you're never going to get it from your staff because all the, you know, throw in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, all that stuff gets in the way. So you have to find someone who can short circuit that. Right. And if, if they are using your watch to tell you what time it is, then shame on you for not being able to read your own watch. I mean, that's, you know, my <laughs> response. Um, uh, just for the record, I have not shared that response with him because I do actually have a desire to continue working at the organization I st- I work at now. But, but yes, that's uh, um, in, in that particular case, actually a secondary kind of um, uh, pat on the back is their, uh, chief, uh, the title's escaping me now, but their EVP over business development um, reached out to me. Uh, while I'm not with the same company, I'm still, you know, running in the same circles of that industry. And he reached out to me now that the the company was sold and they all have their bag of money that they're walking away with. He and some of the guys that were involved with the executive level want to start their own company uh, in the same industry, slightly different, so that they don't violate non competes. Um, but he had reached out to me. He wanted some advice and getting connected mm. with some folks that I knew. I was happy to help him out. For as, small, as big as the industry is that we're in, it's also a very small industry. And I, I again, I felt like here's a guy that uh, um, that you know probably could have done the the networking without me. Um, I was the easier uh, avenue, but wasn't above himself to reach out to me. And we had a great conversation on the phone. And 
you know, chuckled about some of the, you know, the dirt we had to chew back when we were there <laughs> and all that stuff. But, but again, to me, that's the, you know, the biggest compliment you can get from a client is when they're calling you later, when you're not on the clock asking yeah. for your advice and they're seeking you out uh, for this stuff. And, you know, it's, uh, I'm honestly, it's probably one of the biggest thrills I get is I guess deep down I'm a people pleaser, but, uh, it's one of the biggest thrills you can get is to have someone at that level, especially between these two guys, they're eminently competent individuals who um, who have lots of choices in life. And the fact that they're still, you know, reaching out to me on some of the stuff, I think yeah, that's that's an ego boost for me. That's really cool. A good ego boost, not a you know, yeah. toxic ego, ego boost. <laughs> Well, speaking of telling time, I think you probably got a roll, and uh, this has been a great part one, and I definitely want to get to part two, yeah, and, and dive more into this because I've just got a ton of questions, and then you know the Olympic thing. I I don't even think I knew that about you, so I, yeah, that might be, that might have been then, one of those hand grenade ones that you, know, you just throw right. it out there and let it let it marinate a little bit so I right. go off. But yeah, no, I'd love to come back for a second one. Yeah, you know, as long as you're still putting me up at the really nice hotel downtown. Absolutely. Bringing me to the global headquarters here, you know. You got it. I'll have <laughs> my people reach beer. out to you. <laughs> yeah, have your people talk to my people and <laughs> we'll get it done. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Kirk, this has been great, man. Thank you. No problem. Thank you.